Well, good morning again, and I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel. Our uh, pastor is going through Ruth 4, and so if you go to Ruth 4 and turn the next page over, that's 1 Samuel. <laughs> so just thought that we just continue that trajectory. I'll leave Patrick to finish up Ruth 4, and we'll jump ahead to the good stuff. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I very much, for the record, I very much look forward to hearing out the rest of Ruth 4. All right, so um, I thought we'd go to 1 Samuel, and not just because it is a, the next book, chronologically speaking, um, uh, I guess even biblically speaking, your Bibles, uh, but there is so much here in 1 Samuel that we could really camp, on, uh, camp out on, so much about God, so much about his sovereignty, um, and about his love for his people. And I just want to take the, this week and the next couple of weeks to really focus on Samuel, the person. Um, I want to look at his calling. We're going to look at his ministry. Uh, and we really, what I really want to focus is how God uses him to accomplish God's plans. And this is what we're really talking about here. We're really talking about God's sovereignty here. The God's sovereignty, when I say that, I mean that God is working everything out according to the counsel of his will. That God is in complete control and no power or authority can stop his plans. And I think we saw that in Ruth, right? If, 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 when, we, when I say God's sovereignty, we tend to think, think big picture. But when we looked at Ruth uh, in, in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, God was in control of the smallest choices, right? We saw that Ruth just so happened to go to Boaz's field, and Boaz just so happened to be a distant relative of Naomi, and God worked that out in his sovereignty to, to show his grace in it. Um, and we could even look at our own lives. We could look at our past and see God worked out a, a circumstance that we had no idea was going to be as important or was going to be as, um, uh, as impactful in our past, and we could totally see God's hands on it. Right, that's God's sovereignty. But what about when, in his sovereignty, he has you going through a difficult trial? He has you going through um, a, a tough time. Uh, I mean, I could just think of so many things come to mind. Uh, maybe you're dealing with a difficult person in your life, and you try to talk to that person time and time again, but that, it just doesn't change. Uh, maybe it's, it's medical. There's... there's you're following five different order, orders of five different doctors, and nothing's helping. Maybe some jobs, you apply to jobs and, and turn in applications, and, and there's no hire. Everything you're doing seems to not work, right? Um, and it seems like God is keeping you in this difficult situation. We don't tend to think of God's sovereignty in those moments. And maybe you feel like Naomi. Like Naomi says, your hand, the Lord's hand is against me. And in those situations, in those difficult times, it is, it is hard to turn that around and say, and say joyfully, nothing is outside of God's sovereignty. But this is why I like 1 Samuel. It is this difficult situation where 1 Samuel begins. It begins with a woman who is brought low over something she can't control. And a, a book that exalts God's ultimate control begins with a situation of bitter circumstances. So my hope for you is that as, as we see the story unfold, as today, as we look at Hannah, 
I, I pray that God's sovereignty would be a comfort to you, even if you are in a difficult trial, that you can see a, a terrible situation in your life is actually seeded with potential for God's glory. And you'd be drawn to prayer, drawn to his, his throne in prayer. So this is what we're going to see in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 1, we'll be focusing on the first chapter. And what we're going to see is that in, even in our most desperate situations, his sovereignty, his sovereignty brings confidence and hope to our prayer life. That his sovereignty brings confidence and hope to our prayer life. And we're going to focus on four aspects of prayer in, 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 uh, specifically. Those four aspects of prayer, we're going to look at the provocation to prayer, what brings us to prayer? The provocation of prayer, the plea of prayer, the peace of prayer, and then the provision. So the provocation, the plea, the peace, and provision. And each of these aspects of prayer, they must have the foundation of God's sovereign power behind it. They must. Uh, take, take provocation. Without God's sovereignty, Everything you're dealing with, as far as difficult trials, is pointless. Our pleas are futile. We have no peace, and any good that comes out of trials is only left to chance. But with God's sovereignty, all that changes. Our prayers ultimately rest on His ultimate power. Our, our, prayers, our prayers are built on His sovereignty. So that's what we're looking at today, and we'll be reading 1 Samuel 1. So please turn your Bibles, read with me, starting from verse 1 in chapter 1. Now there was a certain man from Ramathayim Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, uh, the son of Eluhu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, the name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man will go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Achanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. And it happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And Hannah, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O oh Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my lord, I am a woman, oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. 
Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Father, we look at, look at the difficult cir- circumstance of Hannah. And we look at our own circumstances that we have in our lives, circumstances that we have faced in the past, maybe circumstances that we're now in. Lord, and it's at times hard to tell ourselves that you mean it for good. But Father, I thank you for this story. I thank you that we could look and see your heart, see your character shine forth, that you are sovereign over everything in our lives. And that because you are sovereign, because you love us, Lord, our suffering is not pointless. You're using suffering, you're using difficult times to draw us to yourself. So pray now, Lord, as we look at this this story, that you would do just that. You would draw us to yourself, and that we would leave encouraged, and we would leave desiring to worship you all the more. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so when we begin in 1 Samuel, we need to know a couple things. First of all, this is still the time of the judges. So we have the time of judges. Um, If you remember, this is a time, judges ends, saying that there is no king in Israel, right? Everyone did what was right in their own eye. And we quickly are introduced to Elkanah. Uh, And we have a, a whole list of where he's from, a list of, of his parents, of, of his, uh, of his um, genealogy. Uh, and right after that, we, we learn that there's two women here, that he, he has married two wives. So we get into the question of, wait, 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 is polygamy okay then? Um, I think we all know the answer is no. Right? Polygamy is not okay. Uh, we do see that the Old Testament tolerates it, uh, tolerates it but it, it does not mean that it was part of God's design. Right? Polygamy is not part of God's design. And if you look throughout the Old Testament, whenever you do see polygamy, sin quickly follows. Right? Um, being married to more than one woman always seems to bring disaster. So <laughs> it's true. <laughs> uh, I actually heard it, heard it said this way. It, you, you first got to learn to live with two angry tigresses, and then you could, you could live with two women. So... <laughs> I, I didn't say that, by the way. That was Spurgeon. So, <laughs> so you can blame for Spurgeon. All right. Um, so for Arcana, it's, it's pretty obvious why he married a second time, right? If, if we look at, at verse 2 even, it says, Hannah, and the name of the other Peninnah, Hannah was for, uh, mentioned first probably because he married her first. And as we go through the story, we see that Hannah could not have children. And in the Old Testament times, uh, children was kind of the the uh, Old Testament way of retirement, right? If you don't have children, you're going to have a, a hard time providing for yourself when you get old. Um, so, so Akana goes and, and marries Peninnah, and Peninnah has the children there. So despite this polygamy, though, we look at Akana and see that he is a faithful guy. Remember, this is a time of the judges, right? Time of the judges, everyone did what was right in their own eye. But Akana, every single year, we see in verse 3, goes to Shiloh, goes to the temple, and sacrifice to the Lord there. Worship was a priority to Elkanah. 
And what was intended to be a joyful time for his family, what was intended to be a time of worship, was nothing but torment for Hannah. And this is where our story picks up. And this is where we get to our first point, the provocation of prayer. We're going to see, even in this, this desperate time for Hannah, God's sovereign hand at work. Okay, so we come to the day of the festival. Verse 4, when the day came that Hannah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. So this is what I kind of imagine. Hannah and, and his whole family is coming. You see Peninnah, and Peninnah has a caravan, a 15-passenger camel caravan, and she unloads them. It turns out there's 18 kids, and, and uh, Akana provides them for them. So what Akana would do, he'll go to the, the temple, bring meat there for sacrifice, bring an animal. The priest will sacrifice it. They'll take a portion, and they'll give the rest of it to, back to his family, and, and he would take it back to his family, and they would enjoy the offering in that way. So a portion of that went to, to, um, went to Peninnah and her family. Uh, but we look in verse 5, but to Hannah, he would give a double portion. So he clearly loved Hannah, right? He would give this double portion, this special part of the meat. He would give it to Peninnah, even though Peninnah didn't have, or sorry, Hannah, even though Hannah didn't have children. But I don't think that matters really much to Hannah. I could just imagine Hannah there. Here's a huge table, huge piece of meat in front of her, and across the table is Peninnah with all her children. I wonder how much she, uh, Hannah would have loved to trade that huge favored piece of meat for a child of her own. And you see in verse 5 the reason why she can't have children. Verse 5, But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. It was the Lord who is not allowing her to have children. It was the Lord who closed the womb. It, we, we don't look at this and say it's a biological misfortune. right? It wasn't a by, by chance or uh, in, uh, uh, something that happened on its own without a purpose. What we're looking at here in verse 5 is the active involvement of God. He is involved in Hannah's life. Unfortunately, this inability that Hannah has brings torment. Look at verse 6 and 7. Verse 6 and 7. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her room. And it happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. Peninnah would provoke Hannah. And so Hannah wept and would not eat. Hannah's tormentor, Peninnah, is just pouring salt on an open wound. I mean, Hannah already has that that shame that would come in that culture of not being able to have children. Um, but Peninnah just makes it all the, all the more worse. And she just rubs it in her face that Hannah doesn't have children. And this tormenting ultimately affects her worship. Right, we can see that she's not eating the meals that she would not eat. She's just weeping. And this happens year after year after year. This is Hannah's situation. This is Hannah's life. And so her husband doesn't help very much. Look at verse 8. Her husband, I think her husband's well-intentioned, by the way. But this is just a testament of how dense husbands can be. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? I think good, good heart questions there. Am I not better to you than ten sons? Okay, husbands, don't go that route. Right? You don't, <laughs> don't want to say, what you're missing, 
<laughs> that's, 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 you can find in me. Uh, that just doesn't work. Okay. So Hannah, she can't find solace. Um, she's looking at her husband. Her husband's not super helpful. Peninnah, just making things worse. And that's her situation. I think the worst thing about her situation is that everything's out of her control. Right? She can't do anything about this. So this is where we find the situation. So I want to just slow down here. How does God's sovereignty bring hope here? How does a supreme, all-powerful God change a difficult situation? Let me just say this. God being in control changes everything. It has to change everything. If God is doing something in our lives, uh, even if it's something that we wouldn't have chosen for ourselves, that means God is at work. That means God is doing something for our good. Right, we all know Romans 8.28. Right? God works all things together for good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. Right, we know God is working to good, and, and this really does make a real difference. We don't see difficult situations as something that's just happening by chance, something that is just a, an act of nature, something that's just a biological accident. We see everything in our lives, even the things that are difficult, done with purpose. This means that for you, for us, there's no such thing as pointless suffering. All your suffering is purposeful suffering. We may not always see it, right? Think of Naomi. Naomi had that great tragedy. She lost two sons and a husband. And she, we see in Ruth that, that God brings her back, and, and through the, the events in Ruth, we, bring, we get David, and David sets up the line for the Messiah, right, for, for Christ to come in and to bring eternal life to, to all who would believe in him. Do you think Naomi saw that? No, she didn't get any indication of that. So we, we don't always know God's purpose, but what we do know, what we could rest in is in God's character. We know he's all-powerful. We know that God is sovereign. We know that what he plans will come to pass. But we also know that he is faithful. We also know that his love is perfect. And so because we're not in control, and God is in control, we could face these situations with a trust in the Lord. And, and those situations, what they do is call us to prayer, right? We're called to pray to the one who is in control. And that's exactly what Hannah does. From this provocation of prayer, she goes to plea in prayer. So that's her second point. We saw the provocation of prayer, and now we go to the plea of prayer. Look at verse 9 and 10. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking Shiloh. So this is after the mealtime. She didn't eat or drink, but just after the mealtime, she leaves and tells us a, a parenthetical statement here. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, and Hannah, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. I just imagine Hannah, there's, there's the offering, they're enjoying a meal, and, and everyone's having a good time. I don't know if you've ever been in this. Have you ever been at a party or some kind of joyful event? There's just something going on in your life, and the music and the laughter, it's almost like acid to you. Right? It could, it's almost doing the opposite of what it should be doing. I think this is where, where Hannah was. I think she was just so burdened that she just had to leave. And she goes to the only place she knows where she could get help. She goes to the temple. And it's at the temple that we see she just breaks down. 
she is before God, and she lets everything out. And I just want to highlight her attitude with a few key words that the scripture tells us. Look at her attitude here. In verse 10, it tells us that she is greatly distressed. In the Hebrew, that is bitterness of soul. Right? Who else do we know is bitter? Right? Naomi, maybe? Yeah, she, she felt that, that bitterness that the Lord has dealt with her bitterly. She had bitterness of soul. Verse 10, we see that she was um, also weeping bitterly, that weeping bitterly is emphatic. She was weeping greatly. Her soul was crushed, and she's just, she's coming before the Lord. We see in verse 11 her prayer, and we'll look at that, but that's not the only thing she prays. Look at verse 12. In verse 12, she continued praying. She made multiple prayers, numerous prayers before the Lord. Verse 13, she's speaking in her heart. This is not out loud. She knows the Lord can hear her. She knows the Lord can hear her agony, even when it's not vocalized. And in verse 15, she's just pouring out her soul. Nothing is being held back when she's in the presence of her father. See, when, you, when you approach God, don't, don't think it has to be elegant speech. Your, your, your prayers don't have to be written out. They don't have to be recycled words. We see in Hannah, it means sometimes they're not words. There's a place in prayer where you could come before the Heavenly Father and, and, and just lie broken in front of Him. He's not going to cast you out. He's not going to ignore the crying of His child. Um, there's been a few times in my own parenting where, where I have been reduced to tears because of my child's brokenness. Um, and it happens, like I said, a few times. My, my son would be sitting on his bed for various reasons, kind of weeping. I go into his room, offer him a hug, he jumps out of his bed, hugs me, and almost at the moment of hugging, he cries even more. Like, I thought that was going to help you, <laughs> but he cries even more in my arms. And we, I think there's a similar approach to God. We're so, we could be so vulnerable with the Lord, and we could be so confident that, he, that he's, he's going to comfort us. We could pour everything out to him. We could tell our Father, we can't do it. We could tell him that we're hopeless at the same time, we could ask him to act. If we're praying like that, if you're coming, if you're in a, situation, in, a situ- in a tough situation and you're praying like that, that's the right place to be. That's where you should be. His sovereignty is going to work out everything, and that same sovereign God who works out everything is, loves you and is working out things for your good. And so like that caring parent that tends to his children so affectionately, so our Heavenly Father comforts his saints. So this is the attitude of prayer. Now, look at the words of prayer. Look at verse 11. There's a couple things I want to point out. There's a lot here. We don't have time to get into every single thing there, but a couple things I want to point out. First of all, look how she starts off the prayer. Oh, Lord of hosts. Okay, so this is the first time this is used. Uh, it was actually used earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Uh, but it's the first time in the Old Testament that this word comes up. And that word is Yahweh's coven- uh, Yahweh, his covenantal name, combined with a word that means armies. And it could typically, it could mean the heavenly armies, it could mean uh, earthly armies, but it just generally means power. And so by using this name, Hannah is recognizing God's authority, recognizing that, that God is a sovereign ruler over all things and nothing can thwart his will. Do you know what it's like to, to pray to the Lord of hosts? that could take care of any little situation you have. Um, I think a lot about traffic. That's kind of my 
my thing. Uh, um, and it's like, it's like me calling the US Army for someone cutting me off, right? It's like this immense power will come. And I just picture the US Army having this weird secret magnetic weapon and pulling that car up in front of me. I think I think about this too much. <laughs> so God, you know, God may not actually do that. <laughs> He's not going to take care of your traffic woes. But we are praying to the God who commands the angels. We are praying to a God who reigns supreme over everything. And this same almighty God allows us to come before his throne and allows us to ask him of things, and he graciously answers those requests. So Hannah recognizes who she's praying to. And look how she sees herself. She said, oh Lord, if you were indeed look on the affliction of who? Your maidservant. Three times, three times she says your maidservant. She clearly sees herself lowly. She clearly sees herself as not in a position to demand anything of God. Right? She is his servant. And she understands that she is completely at his mercy. And I think with this phrase, she recognizes that, that really all she can do is submit to her master. And when it comes to our prayers, especially our desperate prayers, I wonder how quick are we to go there? I think we're, we like to stay in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the frame of thought that we're his child, and we kind of attach to that. Because I'm in child, he's going to give us anything. Um, but we're also his servants. And being his servants means that we have to accept the master's will even if that means that he denies our request. And I think this is the hard part about, about these desperate prayers. God does deny those he loves. He doesn't deny them love, but he, he does deny those he loves. Look, I mean, think of Paul, right? Think of Paul. Uh, Paul had the thorn in the flesh, and he says, three times, right? Three times I asked the Lord. But what did God say to him? He said, my grace, God said to, to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. Imagine getting that response for a prayer. Your, my power is made perfect in your weakness. And so Paul, even though he was denied by the Lord, that denial served a greater purpose for him. God may say no to our desperate prayer. But that doesn't mean, just because he says no, that doesn't mean there's no comfort there. And that doesn't mean there's no purpose for the suffering. If Paul had that thorn, uh, that thorn in the flesh removed, he would not have known God's perfect weakness. And, and that's a grace, that's a grace that's only experienced in his denials. There is grace in his denials. And so like Hannah, when we come to prayer, when, when it's a desperate prayer, we recognize who we are, we recognize who he is, and we don't bargain with God. Now, that brings me to this vow, right? This whole idea of a vow. We, we, we look at this passage and be like, oh, it kind of looks like he's, she's trying to offer God a deal. Like, hey, if you help me out, I'll give you my son. I don't think that's what she's doing. You kind of think about Hannah for a little while. Think about her life. Year after year after year, she's been tormented. And think about even the time before Penina came. Right? There was a time before Peninnah came where she couldn't give her husband a son. 
And I think after just so, such a long time of denial, such a long time of God saying no, I think she came to a point where she asked herself, why do I really want this? Why, is, why do I want a son? So I think Hannah gets to the place where she comes to the end of herself. And all she wants to do is give whatever, God's, whatever God gives her, she just wants to give it back to God. I don't know how often we get to that point. I don't know how often when we're praying for something, we, we say, if we get this thing, if, if God changes my circumstances, how am I going to glorify God because of that? We usually stop with, Lord, change this. But to go further, to do what, what, what Hannah is doing, Lord, change this, but then use it. Have it. That's, I mean, that's a desperate prayer that just focuses on one person, right? Focuses on the Lord. It recognizes who he is. She recognizes who she is, and it rightfully gives God all the praise and glory. And all this, everything that we talked about about this prayer, all is built on God's sovereign power. Okay, so we have the provocation, what, what brings us to prayer. We looked at the plea of prayer, and Hannah keeps going, and we, and we look in the story, and there's peace here. There is peace in this prayer. Look at verse 12. Now it came about as she continued praying. So she was praying, and then here comes Eli, Eli watching her mouth. So Hannah was speaking in her heart, and Eli, looking at her, thought she was drunk. And then Eli comes up to her and said, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. Now imagine this from Hannah's perspective. Let's say you're going through a tough time, you're praying, and you see like one of these spiritual giants come. I'm going to say John Piper in this case. John Piper comes. You're praying, and you see him coming, and you think he's going to give you hope. May he pray with you. May he encourage you. But all he says is, stop drinking, stop being wasted, and throws his book, Don't Waste Your Life at You, and walks away. <laughs> see? Now, I don't think John Piper would ever do that. Um, but that's kind of like what it was for Hannah. This, the spiritual leader of Israel comes up to him, uh, comes up to her, and rather than giving her comfort, rebukes her for something she's not even doing. And this is really a testimony of how bad Israel is during this time. This is a dark time in Israel. It is so rare for Eli to see someone praying that the first thought is not prayer, it's drunkenness. It's a sad time there. But look how, look how Hannah responds. She says to Eli, I'm speaking out of my great concern and provocation. That's where it's coming from. If you ever wondered, if you, if you look at Hannah, and even in chapter 2, if you read ahead and look at chapter 2 and see all this rich theology, all this strong trust in the Lord, and you ask yourself, where does it come from? It came from this time of calling out to the Lord. It came from this provocation, right? The Lord closed her room, and now she sees God way differently than, than she would have if, if the Lord didn't close her room. It is during those times that the Lord teaches us things that we can't see. I think we shut our ears off when there's, when there's a lot of joy and a lot of music around, but in the times of sorrow, we could hear God's quietest whisper. So Eli responds, okay, my bad, I guess. Eli answers in verse 17, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you may have asked of him. And so Hannah goes, 
She responds, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. And so the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Now, we look at Hannah. Did her situation change? Peninnah's still there, right? She goes back to, back to her, her camp there. Akana's still Akana. He didn't change. Peninnah is still there. Peninnah's still going to be tormenting. She's not pregnant. This is not like some weird conception that happens here. She's in the same situation. So why the change? And I think it's because she's, she came to a place where she's trusting God. And, and I want to say, I want, let me add to that, not just a trust, but really a submission. She is submitting to God, to God's plan for her life at that moment. Uh, and, and you can only do that after this kind of prayer that she has, after pleading, after recognizing that God's sovereign, after seeing that you're his servant. I'm reminded of Philippians 4, 6, right? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be, request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a result of prayer. It's, it's that peace of God, that peace that, that does surpass comprehension. You know, we, we look at Hannah and be like, well, her situation is the same, but it's that peace of God that, that, that helps her. And we often look at, I don't, I don't want to say we do the whole time, but we often look at prayer as just a way out. Right? Lord, rescue me. And that's a fine prayer. I mean, there's a place for that. But prayer doesn't always give us an answer. And, and prayer doesn't always make us feel better. You could be in prayer day in and day out, and you still feel broken. But what it does do, what it does do, is that it focuses you on the or focus, make, keeps your focus on the sovereign God, the God who is in control of everything, the God who's working in your very circumstance, and he and and prayer moves our trust into His sovereign hands. And this is where our peace comes from. It doesn't come from God answering our prayer; it comes from who God is. So let me close with this: We look at we saw the peace of prayer, and we look at and now we have the provision of prayer. Look at verse 19. The next, the, then the next day they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Remembered her. It has something really important here. This is not, it just happens by itself. It's not her, her womb suddenly was able to bear a child. This was the Lord's doing. The Lord remembered her and acted. And we see in verse 20, And it came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. We get the answer to prayer, and let's just go back a little bit, pan out for a second. It is an answer to Hannah's prayer, right? Hannah was praying for a son. But this is going to be an answer to prayer for Israel as well. Right? We know Samuel. Samuel's going to grow up. He's going to be a prophet. From Samuel, we're going to get kings. We get David, and from David, we get our Messiah. Hannah had no idea that her child would be so key in God's plan. But this is why I say we don't, we don't, we don't always know the purpose of God, but we know the character of God. We know God is going to use it. So maybe you're like Hannah and have been in a period of, of pouring out your soul 
Maybe it's, it's been a difficult marriage. Maybe it's been medical issues. Maybe financial. Maybe it's something that God told you no, and you're having a hard time with that. You're having a hard time with God's sovereign plan for your life currently. Let me give you three points of encouragement just to close our time here. First point, because God is sovereign over your circumstances, there is no pointless suffering. And we saw that. There's no pointless suffering. There is only purposeful suffering. If God has ordained it, and God will use it, it's going to be used for something. Point number two, the intimacy you gain with God is worth the pain of suffering. The intimacy you gain with God is worth the pain of suffering. We need to allow God to use hardships to draw him to himself, to reveal those things we wouldn't, have, we wouldn't otherwise have seen. Right? That, those things are only seen in the hardships. They're not seen in your, your everyday going to work, coming home, taking care of the kids. It's seen, those hardships reveal something about God that you wouldn't have otherwise seen. And those things about God that you don't see, um, and, and we just let those things really bring us to worship, which is my last point here. If you're not going through a trial right now, then I want you to go look at your past and see how God has answered your prayers. And use that, return what he's given you, give it back to him in worship. Look at specific answers to prayer. It may not only in your life, but in the life of the church. And glorify God because of that. Ultimately, all these things are made possible because of Christ. Right? We look at Christ. Christ died for us, and he advocates for us. He pleads for us. He intercedes for us. And it is only by his blood that we could approach the throne of grace to begin with. And so we rejoice in him. We praise him, and we trust in him, in his sovereign control. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. Lord, and I, and I do pray for, for those who are in difficult trials right now, uh, that you would just encourage their hearts, that your sovereignty would, would reign supreme in their, in their minds and, and, and in their hearts. Uh, but at the same time, Lord, that they would have to trust in you. They would have a, a confidence that you are going to be faithful no matter what their circumstances Lord, I pray for, for those of us who are not in trials, who may be going into one later this week, somewhere in the future. Lord, we know that you are in control. I pray that you would strengthen us even now. Lord, and we praise you for sending your son to die for us, that our ultimate concern has been dealt with, that there is no condemnation in Christ. So, Lord, we praise you and we give you this day. In Jesus' name, amen.